0: Welcome to the Women's Mentoring Network of Canada, a podcast about ex-cadet women mentoring and building community together. I'm your host, Amanda Calhouse, a graduate of the Royal Military College of Canada, class of 1994, in electrical engineering. So good morning. Today on the podcast, I have with me Daryl Tremaine. How are you today,
1: Daryl? I'm
0: well, thanks. How are you doing, Amanda? I'm doing well. And I want to point out that you are actually the second guest that I've recorded with from France. <laughs> <laughs> so let's introduce you to our listeners. Can you tell everyone about where you went to military college and when? I was at RMC,
1: started in 1982 and graduated in 86. And what did you do study? I studied engineering physics. Wow, that's a tough program. <laughs> It's intense, but I really enjoyed it because it was the balance between doing the engineering part and also doing more pure science, the physics.
0: Ah, okay. And we
1: also, we had small classes. There were only about 10 of us. And I really enjoyed that part too.
0: Oh, yeah. One of my friends was in engineering physics. I
1: I feel like it was still
0: pretty small in like 90 to 94 when I was there. But yeah, I mean, RMC just in general has small class sizes, doesn't it? Yes. (laughs) Yeah. So now I, I've I've given away a little bit by saying we're recording with you in France, but tell us a little bit about uh, about what you do uh, what what you do to, to
1: fill your days. Okay. Well, uh, my my year basically divides in two because my partner Stephen and I spend three to four months a year in uh, the south of France. Um, so we're very lucky that way. So May, June, mostly, and then part of September, October, November. And when we're here, I do a lot of biking. I do some hiking with friends. I just had a weekend with three friends in the Alps <clears throat> where we did a lot of hiking. So uh, that, that's a fun thing to be, it's the first time I've done that, but it's uh, an opportunity that obviously I wouldn't get if we were in Canada. Um, yeah. we've been coming to the same place for over 15 years and coming to the south of France for over 20 years and when you're not when you're not in the south of France <laughs> how do I fill my days so in Kingston I uh, again I do a certain amount of biking and walking uh, reading we've got a a new grandson who's two years old and we look after him quite a bit and I have some Faux grandchildren, I call them my foes, F A U X. And uh, they're 12, nine, and five, and we've been engaged with them as grandparents, so to speak, since the oldest was born. And the oldest, the two oldest came with us on this trip to France, and they were here for a week with us uh, the nine year old and the 12 year old. So that was their introduction to. France and international travel. Uh, So it's it's an important part of my life being engaged with kids. I've always enjoyed that. Uh, I especially enjoy boys. And luckily I have two stepsons who are now grown. And then I have a total of four grandchildren between the Vray and the three foes. Oh, wow. And they're all boys as well. Oh, my goodness. So it's a treat for me. The active, wow, yeah. active, sporty kind of world is where I, I enjoy being.
0: That might be the perfect segue to my next question. What prompted you to go to military college in the first place?
1: <laughs> I was in Quebec and I'd done Sejep. I took a year off and went to bishops for a year and didn't find it challenging enough. Wanted to do engineering, but didn't want to go to a big school, big university where I'd have 300 person classes. And a friend of mine was already at RMC, Ian Matheson, in the class of '85, and he invited. He needed a date for the ball (laughs) as a first year, so he invited me and talked to me for the whole evening about how horrible it was and how hard it was, and and I was just more and more taken by that, the challenge. Oh my goodness! (laughs) Yeah, I really wanted to the sports aspect, and I liked the idea that you had to get involved. Uh, I was somebody who'd always sat back and uh, been more of a watcher. My younger sister was very outgoing and charismatic and I, that sort of took the space away, I think. So mm-hmm. this the challenge, the idea that I would um, be pushed to be involved and to be active, I like that. And to be at a small engineering school.
0: Oh, very good. Did you have a mil you would have had a military occupation? What what was your uh, what was your military occupation to be?
1: Uh, I was uh, um Aery. Aerie, so Aerie. aerospace engineer. So I think, I think, it think was, that's a, it. no, it's aeronautical engineer. Oh aeronautical engineer. Aeronautical oh, okay. engineer, yeah. I did spend my I was our ETP. So I didn't okay. have to stay in afterwards. I paid my way through and about half my classmates thought I was crazy. Why would you pay to come here? And the other half said, oh, if I'd I known about brilliant. that, I would have done <laughs> that too. But I did the normal summers, you know, airy is a breeze because it's just OJT.
0: That was your path. Yes. Um. And so through your four years um, at military college, um. What were some of the, you know, what were some of the highlights for you or lowlights?
1: That's an interesting question. One big challenge for me was in uh, just after Christmas of my first year, my boyfriend, who was also a cadet, broke his neck in a high box accident. Oh, goodness. Peter Sheehan. And, uh, you know, life had been looking quite good, even though first years are challenging we'd gotten to know each other in the fall we'd started dating in late november went to the ball together and spent some christmas some christmas mm-hmm. time together so that really blew me away for the rest of the semester for sure and we kept dating for another 2 years and so that was a it was a distraction to some extent mm-hmm. i got a lot of life lessons out of that But that was made everything harder for me. So that was a low light and Mm -hmm. uh, as you would call it, I would say in third year when the uh, badges were made, the sweatbuster badge or pins, whatever were made. We, you know, starting into third year, I thought we've gotten rid of, you know, a lot of the guys who were so negative and I thought things would be looking up. And to have that happen really brought a lot of stuff back of how negatively we had been treated as women in my first and second year. So that was a hard time as well. Uh, it's, so I think for me, when things are going well and then I get sideswiped, I mean, that's hard for anyone, but I think right. that really, those were two things that were very hard. I don't know if I can identify uh, specific times. I think uh, being DCWC in the fall of, of our fourth year, so I don't know if that's still the same, but at that time the DCWC was in charge of the recruit camp, which at that time was five weeks long. Okay. And so having, and, and the recruits were all in one section at that time. Oh. And so they had one flight leader and the flight leaders and I were responsible for recruit camp that five week period. And that was that was a a fun thing to be involved in and have a team (laughs) and us working together. And so I I think that was fun. And it's at the beginning of the year where there's not as many demands. So things are a little more relaxed. And so I think that would be one of the highlights.
0: Yeah, because then
1: I assume, like us,
0: recruit term really started a few weeks before school started as well, right? It was two weeks
1: before, and then yeah. and then oh, it was a little less than that because they did they went to botch before at that time. Yeah, and yeah, we just, did, too. You, you did too. Yeah, so I think they arrived maybe a week early, and then it went all the way to Thanksgiving. So it was quite a long. Might have been six weeks. It was a long. I think it was six time. weeks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah, it was. Uh, I know it was six weeks for us, and yeah, yeah. it was sort of the two weeks before before uh, Labor Day, and then the four weeks sort of between Labor Day and Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or not. I think it's the week before Thanksgiving that they would. Uh, we used oh, to have. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah, the, yeah. The obstacle course was was uh, yeah a week before, right? Week before, yeah. So you were shaping the young minds
1: coming in. What <laughs> would
0: that have been? The class of eighty nine or ninety?
1: Eighty nine. 89. Yeah so I mean it's fun because we wanted the way many of us saw it is that there was so much garbage in what we'd gone through and we wanted to be more focused and less just on okay this is the tradition so we're going to do it too. Now of course we did a certain amount of that but part of it was the idea that you're changing you have some input and some chance to change things.
0: I'm curious. Do you remember any of the changes that you implemented? I'm I'm curious if they've right Oh, I don't think
1: it was anything as significant as that because now they've shifted everything. You know, oh yeah, I'm just curious. Even you know, and your period. Yeah, I came in like nine years, eight or nine years after people talking about, you know, having, shoe polish races where they had to push the shoe polish with their nose and get shoe polish all over their nose. And I just thought that was total bullshit, and yeah, we never it, had that <laughs> so you know the some of the things you did we did as recruits at least you could see a point so yeah. where you had to get in and change you know you had 30 seconds to change and change your uniform or all that stuff. It was very high pressure and it didn't have to be like that, and a lot of that stuff is probably gone, but at least you were learning to change quickly and time management yeah. but Things like pushing pushing shoe polish with your nose uh, doesn't feel like that. It feels more like hazing to me. And yeah. while it can, you know, the supposed rationale is that it's building team spirit and all this stuff, and tearing you down to build you up. I, those sorts of things that didn't have an actual purpose were yeah. the kinds of things that I wanted to see eliminated. I'm not. It may have happened in individual flights, but it, that was the kind mm-hmm. of the. The spirit that many of us were trying to get across was that we could have a shift. We didn't have to keep doing those silly things. Right.
0: If you were DCWC in the first term, did that naturally assume that you might be CWC in the second term?
1: I think often the DCWC then got was a slasher was after, you know, because it's such yeah. a demanding job. Uh so yeah I don't I don't I think often it was a CSL or maybe the CWTO. I know the names are different now. Uh oh no, well they maybe are squadron, I, those are some of the names I, I knew. <laughs> yeah, Squadron Senior, I think it's called now is the CSL and I don't know what CWTO is now. Graduated then from RMC. What did
0: where where did you go?
1: Uh well because I was uh, R.E.T.P., people started asking me already in third year what I was going to do when I graduated. And I felt wow. as though I had to come up with an answer. And I thought, oh, well, traveling traveling would be fun. And I'd lived in Europe as a kid, so I thought, oh, well, I'll I'll go to Asia. So I, when people asked, I just started saying, well, I'm going to travel in Asia. And I ended up traveling in Asia. <laughs> so, <laughs> I had some money left over after graduating because since... I'd been paid each summer and I'd had a few scholarships and I was very careful with my money. So I uh, traveled for six months from September till March. Uh, in oh, Asia. wow. Yeah, yeah. That, was, that was a really good thing to do. Hard and yeah. sometimes and exciting and enjoyable, eye-opening. And I became really fascinated with the Chinese language. With China fascinated me. And so the following year, I started my master's um, at Simon Fraser in natural resource management. And at the same time, I studied Chinese. Um, oh, wow. I did uh, the first year and then the second year, third year Chinese classes. Oh, goodness. So are you fluent or did you keep it no, up? No, it's very hard. <laughs> it, it's it's a very challenging language, as I'm sure most people can imagine, having to memorize characters. So I, I got um, to a certain proficiency, and through that, I uh, got a job in China when I graduated. Uh, then my Chinese got better because I was really using it, and I was trying right. to read. I, had a, I could read about 1,000 characters, um, oh, wow. which meant that I could, if I'd spent about two hours, I could read a art, small article in the newspaper. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. (laughs) But I could have conversations, you know, very simple conversations. I could buy food.
0: Oh, wow. That's uh, that's pretty cool.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I found out I loved languages. I spoke French because I lived in France as a kid and then ended up in Quebec. Uh, So I was exempt French at RMC, which was nice in the first year, especially where I had five spares. And most people had had six or seven. And most people in engineering had one or two. Yeah. Um, And, uh, but I hadn't, because I was a kid, I didn't want to speak French. I was shy. So I just Mm -hmm. decided when I was learning Chinese, I was just going to speak it. And so I talked to myself all the time, just saying whatever I knew how to say. Green tree. Uh, (laughs) These are my shoes. There is a woman, like just, and so I learned that I loved languages and that I had a bit of a knack for it. So since then, I've worked on Italian and on Spanish as well. And that's another thing I enjoy doing in my free time. I'll, I'll read in Spanish or Italian. And, uh, oh,
0: wow. You actually read in those languages.
1: I can, that... especially Italian. Spanish, I'm at a lower level, but I can read a novel in Italian. Oh, wow. And I can get by when I'm in the country. Very handy. So...
0: I guess uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at my, my question list. So your 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 decision to leave the military was sort of made before you even
1: joined by your decision to go through the RETP program? That's right. And uh, RMC had been in my family history. So, you know, I'd grown up <coughs> visiting it. My dad was head of the ex-cadet club when I was a teenager. So we went to the um, ex-cadet parade and stuff like that so for me it was just another university and it wasn't until I got to Chilliwack for botch for basic training and they issued me a gun and a helmet and that's when I really just realized mm. oh right I'm in the military I and mean, it's <laughs> it's not like I couldn't have known that I was 20 years old but yeah. it was uh, it was it was interesting how we can Separate, live in denial. Separate things, you know. Yeah. Uh, so I compartmentalize. Yeah, I'd, compartmentalized. Never, yes, <laughs> I'd never intended really to be in the military. So
0: right. So you said you never intended to really be in the military. That was sort of based on growing up with, a, if your family was had gone through Army, were they in the military? Was that all the moves?
1: No, my dad uh, worked for Lafarge, Canada Cement, Lafarge, cement company. But he, so he had gone through, my grandfather went and you just, it was four years. He actually had to do two years of university, my grandfather. He graduated in 27.
0: Oh, wow.
1: And, but you weren't in the military after, you could be in the reserves, but it wasn't, there was no... Obligation, and my dad. When my dad went, it was the same thing. He graduated in '54, and my uncle, and there were other members of the family. So uh, oh, it was okay. always had been a reserve thing. It hadn't been a, a regular a right army field. thing. Yeah, and then I right. started. I can't remember in the late '50s, maybe or early '60s, where oh, it was, ROTP was invented, and it oh. became the regular officer training plan. So, oh, I never uh, realized. That. Yeah, so that's one reason it had felt more like a another university with some other. You know, a university is a difference, as they called it when we were there.
0: Yep, <laughs> that was the tagline when I joined. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's funny. I, uh, <laughs> I, as you were, as you were talking about, you know, being at the the Christmas ball and, you know, the more challenges, the the more interested you got. I, I went to the sunset ceremony on Thursday night and I brought my youngest daughter with me, um, just for company on the, on the drive. Um, our nephew, our nephew does go there. So we were, we were going to visit him as well. And, uh, and so we, uh, were there and we're, we're sitting watching the parade and, and shortly after we got there, someone had fainted on parade and, you know, my daughter was, you know, is, is that person okay? And I'm like, oh yeah, like they're fine. There's medics. They'll, they'll take them off. Like this happens all the time. And she looks at me, this happens all the time. <laughs> what? <laughs> and I'm like, well, yeah, you're in a hot uniform and, you know, especially in spring, it can get pretty warm and you know people faint I fainted (laughs) she was like really (laughs) and uh and then we were sitting talking with our nephew you know some of the other stuff and she just looks at me and she was like I'm not coming here (laughs) <laughs> you must be out of your mind if you think i would i would come to a place where i have to stand at attention to watch other people doing things for two and a half hours right. <laughs> and so it, it's 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 sometimes it's sometimes funny to to see it through the lens of someone who is like
1: what why would you do that <laughs> yes exactly yeah it's a big and contrast it is. Yeah. It is. So. And and she she may remain like that. I'm not saying she'll go to Mill call, but she may be somebody when she's a little older, uh, you know, enjoys challenges or, or you know, right? You know, but at yeah, this stage, exactly. she's just like life is hard enough as it is. Let's just take the easy path. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I just thought it was like, why would why
0: would you why would you why would you stand for two and a half hours?
1: <laughs> right. But she may end up mountain climbing or something but it would be something oh, who yeah, enjoys yeah. Her, that she enjoys and so she'll exactly face the challenges because what she's doing is interesting and that's oh oh sort absolutely. of like a, no, she, you know
0: she she plays volleyball 4 mm. days a week 2 2 hours minimum you know a practice and absolutely can't wait to get there right and so yeah it, you're absolutely right when when it's when it's the challenge that that you know, that they decide. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Or that we are interested in, that we as a person,
1: you know,
0: are interested. Yeah. Yeah. So what were some of the things that you learned about yourself while you were at RMC?
1: I think, you know, I mentioned earlier that I had been sort of self-effacing and didn't realize I had leadership skills or anything like that. And so I think one, one thing that came out for me is that I did have some of those skills that I could stand up and talk in front of people and could lead or, you know, that leadership has a whole bunch of different uh, types of leadership, I would say. So I, I don't think I led in a traditional kind of leadership way in the military, say, but I had. In the
0: military sense. Yeah, yeah.
1: But I think I I can started being able to see myself as someone that people would look to in certain situations where I has never had seen myself that way before.
0: It it's interesting that you say, you know, in the in the military sense, because I've I've talked to, you know, a number of different women now um, for the podcast. And I think that's it's one of the things that, you know, especially through the, you know, the 80s and 90s that that I hear a lot is like, you know this sense that you know their style of leadership wasn't you know the military style of leadership i think that's changing i think you know leadership is now seen as like uh, there's a broader range of what leadership is and looks like and you know some of the more you know some of the the graduates i've talked to from you know the last couple of decades that that seems to be more um Accepted, And I, I think it's because, you know, there have been more women leaders who are leading differently uh-huh. than, than male leaders in the past. But, um, but it isn't, is you know, interesting observation, right? You at least can see that you had, you know, those leadership capabilities, even if you
1: did it differently. Uh-huh. That's right. And so that was a big shift for me and my, and see, my own seeing ability to see myself. Um, so that was one thing I learned, uh, well, on that same subject that you were talking about, the different sort of more feminine, say leadership styles, which men can have and vice versa. Yeah. Um, one of my friends, once I'd become CWC and I'd been doing it for a month or two, uh, Mike Schmidt came into my room one day and he said, Daryl, you're mothering the college. And he said, and that's a good thing. (laughs) And I, I still don't know exactly what he means, but I think the way I understood it at the time is that I was doing it in a more nurturing way. Right. I was leading in a more nurturing way as opposed to a, a strict military, this is the way it is way. It's like, and, uh, I t- now, I, I was confused at the time, but I take it now kind of as a compliment yeah. uh, of introducing different way of being. And uh, certainly, the military wasn't expecting that or ready for it, I don't think, <laughs> yeah. at that time.
0: Yeah, Some sometimes organizations just need to be brought along. <laughs> That's right, yeah. So you mentioned you were CWC. Mm-hmm. Um, was that in the in the second term? In the second term, how did that how did that come about? You know, we talked about oftentimes if you're DCWC, you become you know you you get less bars in the second term,
1: maybe get a bit of a break. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, I it must have been well, challenging with the workload. It was challenging. I was quite burnt out in the fall from being DCWC and being an Enchvis. And I walked, I remember walking into the D Adams office and him saying something like, oh, there's the future CWC. And I was just like, no, I am, (laughs) I'm done. I am exhausted. I don't want to do that job. And I'd go and see him maybe once or twice a week about different issues. And maybe once a week I'd see the D cadets and he brought it up one meeting, but in a more kind of official way. Uh, he didn't say we're planning to name UCWC, but somehow he, and I was just, I told him I'm exhausted. I don't want to do the job. And I'd rather you choose somebody else. And he asked me who, and I mentioned some names. And I said, you know, there's always more than one or two people in the college who can do this job and, you no know, maintain their marks. and. And so I just left it at that, and I, I didn't have control over it. I'm in the military. They can, they can do what yeah. they want. And then they announced the slate at that time on the Friday of the first week back, because they waited until all the marks were in. Okay. And they announced it at noon at lunch. We all now, I don't think everyone has lunch at the same time, but at that point we were all, it was a duty to be at lunch so that we'd all hear announcements because there was no internet and all that stuff and so somebody announced it all and you know I was really taken aback uh because I was hoping they'd they'd do what I asked (laughs) they'd taken that into consideration (laughs) and uh, I was going to class that afternoon and prof I'd had for chemistry Mike Evans stopped me and he said so did you accept I was like I looked at him and he said, CWC, did you accept it? And I looked at him, and I was like, I'm in the military, you know. So right. you're like, can I reject I, it? Yeah, I was named in this position. You know, I didn't it didn't even cross my mind that I could say no. So anyway, I was a reluctant CWC and I did burn out very badly oh. by November, or I mean by March norm. I'm sorry, Norm, I've forgotten your name, last name. <laughs> he was my DCWC, and he was great. And it got to the point where I couldn't make a decision. Somebody would come into my room and say, they're all my first years, you know, want to do this, and it's a little unusual, you know, or I think it's time for the first years to get to wear their sixes instead of their fours uniform or, you know, something. Right. And... I'd say, oh, just a minute, you know? And I'd go and I'd talk to Norm. (laughs) I'd say, Norm, what do you think? Sonia, Norm Sonia. And he'd say, I think that's a great idea, or "Mm, I don't think that's such a great idea. Maybe I think we should wait or whatever. And then I'd go, i just do what Norm said. I don't even know if he knew that. I was gone. Um, So that was very hard. Norm bought me a hamster. And so I had a hamster in my room, and I'd let it run around with during study hours. Um, and I, I'm not a pet person at all, but I think he got me that. Maybe, and I don't know if it was an intuition or if he knew. I don't know. I, I never asked him. And, uh, But I think it just kind of distracted me. And right. it was a breaking of the rules. And I think that helps, too, is that you're right. not, it's less military or something. I don't know. But, I, you know, I made it through the semester, but I was uh, I was pretty burnt out. Yeah. I, I have, I've been insomniac since I was 20, and oh. uh, so I think that's part of it, too, is just I was getting less and less sleep. I was sleeping four hours a night or five hours a night. And, oh, wow. Yeah, so that was hard. It, you know, it would have been better for me if they had not named me, but i also... Yeah. You know, of course it was a challenge. I learned from it. There's lots of things, positive things as well. I you know, there were yeah. certain things I enjoyed for sure. Uh so I don't want to paint it at all all negative. It certainly it felt like a compliment. It was a nice, you know, I received it positively yeah. as well. Yeah. <laughs>
0: They don't usually hand out five bars as a punishment. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and I knew Although that... I can imagine at that point, it might have felt a bit that way.
1: <laughs> I mean, I knew that they wanted a woman CWC. And I knew that I was acceptable because my dad had such pull in the ex-cadet club and he was well known. So I'm sure that was a factor. You know, but as I said, they, I think they could have chosen one of any four or five or six of us. Yeah. Um, for the second semester. So that was, you know, I understand those political things as well that I, yeah. I, they were breaking the ice with somebody who they felt. And I wasn't, I'm not a super feminine female. And I think right. that makes, that can make it easier to accept. I had a low voice. The first thing that the uh, college sergeant major did was take me down to the pier. And he stood at one end and he stood me at the other end. He said, okay, you're going to learn how to give commands and keep your voice low. I don't want any screeching on my print square. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness quite honestly, can imagine, you know, you have a unisex, what I would describe as a, a, you know, a unisex or gender neutral name, right, as Uh, well. So someone reading your name in the ex-cadet club might not even take a second look at it. (laughs) I guess maybe that was an advantage. (laughs) (sighs) uh, You remind me of my own naivety (laughs) at that age. I, I think I had no understanding of the political nature of things. <laughs> I was mm. in my
1: late teens and early 20s. Because I'd gone to bishops and I'd taken a year off and I, I was 20 when I started RMC. So I was mm. older than most people. Right, uh, And some people have told me that I came across as very mature and I would imagine at
0: 20, you would be a lot more mature than, you know, the the 16 and 17-year-olds. Well, there were sure. no 16 or
1: 17-year-olds. So there were 18 and 19-year-olds in general. There might have been the odd 17-year-old, but most okay. people were 18 and 19. But it does make a difference. You know, I'm sure there were lots of ways I was naive, like, you know, not knowing mm-hmm. I was going to get a gun and a... A helmet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. But there were other ways in which I was more, more mature. One of the things that,
0: you know, I normally ask about is mentorship. Can you tell our listeners about, you know, some of the experiences that you've lived through that are really sort of, I'd say, at the core of how you spend your your days and, and your life today? hmm because I think in
1: doing that, you can provide mentorship to others. <laughs> right. So I did my master's and then I worked in China on this project and moved to Kingston in December of 1990 to move in with my current partner, Stephen Bonnycastle, who had been my English profit at RMC. And he had two sons who were 6 and 13 at the time. So I became a stepmother and was thinking, planning on finding work in Kingston of some sort, uh, whether it was engineering or environmental stuff that I'd gotten more involved in. And my sister was very ill. She was very depressed. And a few years earlier, when I had been in Asia, she'd attempted suicide five times. And oh. in August of 91, so nine months after I moved to Kingston, she uh, killed herself. So that just devastated me because she'd been my idol for my whole life. And my mother suffered from bipolar disease and had been a very ineffective and sometimes very rejecting and inappropriate mother in lots of ways. So I had not attached to my mother. I'd attached to my little sister, who I realized over time was my mother. She... Like that, when we we need a bond to keep us going, right. and she was my bond. And all of a sudden, not only was she gone, but she'd killed herself, which was a rejection of me. You know, i oh. you know I wasn't worth living for, which I'd already 30. felt when she did all those her attempts, which were quite serious. She had really wanted to die. Yeah, and so that was very hard for me, and it. Brought within a month, I started having memories of childhood abuse. Luckily, it already started in therapy when I moved to Kingston because I knew because of my mother and my sister's suicide attempts and other things that I had things I wanted to work through. So, luckily, I had a therapist because it would have been a lot more difficult in the state I was in to start at that point. So, I then spent the next few decades. Working through extreme childhood trauma from both of my parents, and abuse from both sides. Um, I'm somebody who does things deeply and seriously. So yeah. other people in my position might have gotten to, you know, after a few years, gotten to a position where they are happy to start try working or something. But you know, I was still suffering from insomnia. I had a lot of PTSD symptoms. And so I just kept at it and kept at it. And I feel much, much healthier now. I'm much more able to engage with people. I could not have done this podcast even five years ago. I just yeah. would not have felt comfortable putting myself out there. I certainly wouldn't have talked about this. It was very hard for the first at least 20 years because I didn't have anyone that I felt I could turn to uh, I didn't feel as though any of my RMC classmates could understand the situation I was in. PTSD has become much more common and understood and accepted. Um, so it was a very isolating yeah. thing to go through. Kate Armstrong's book made a difference for me because she both talked about the abusive nature of RMC, but also the abuse that she had lived and how those two go together. So, you know, in doing the work that I did in psychotherapy, it was very early apparent that when I went to that Chris's ball and my friend Ian talked about all the abuse, that that unconsciously is what attracted me. And that often wow. happens with adults who have grown in, up in an abusive situation whether it's an abusive partner or an abusive work situation, or the, there's some unconscious thing that happens where, well, either I don't fully understand, but, but it's something like, I can win this one, right? Wow. So I'm gonna, yeah. you know, or this is what life it is. And without that, I'm not alive. You know, I need,
0: oh yeah. I
1: need the constant threat, this constant feeling of threat to be able to uh, feel like I'm living the way I'm supposed to be living or something like that. I don't, I can't explain it very well. So that helps me understand more clearly how I ended up at RMC. Yeah. Uh, So now I'm, I'm working on a book, which I think will be a trilogy because it's quite complex, my situation. Yeah. So that's a form of mentoring. I'm hoping to be able to talk both about my situation that I lived and my, the work with my therapist, which really illuminates kind of the deep psychological processes that happen when we're abused. And then, I mean, in every per, there's sort of different ways one can react to abuse but this is one way that people react and it may help be able to be helpful for others in a similar situation or people to understand somebody
0: in a situation. Who's who's had that lived experience. Yeah. And so
1: living with, I now realize that my sister also suffered from bipolar disease, but she was undiagnosed and I can now see her manic phases and her depressive phases. Whereas before, when somebody's in their teens and twenties, it's very hard to identify mania because it just looks yeah. like being a teenager. Being a teenager, yeah. Um, and so living again, it's very isolating to live in a family with mental illness because it's hard to find other people who understand. Um, yeah. And so I'm hoping it also some of the book will be helpful to people who might be living in that situation.
0: First of all, thank you for, you know, being willing to share with our listeners. Because, you know, I think in my experience, there are always people um, who who can benefit, even if it's just one. There's always, you know, someone who can benefit from hearing what someone else has lived through and, you know, see hope really for themselves. It's not even about moving past, but to be able to, you
1: know, really see that light at the end of a tunnel, perhaps. Mm-hmm. And feeling isolated. Feeling less yeah. isolated. As a kid, I'd been always the odd one, the weird one. And then at RMC, I felt as though I belonged to a community, even though there was this whole anti-female thing going on. There was still, there were lots of guys that weren't like that and, you know, yeah. And I felt part of something. And then to end up on this path that was so different than what I would think people looking at me would expect. Right. That made it harder. And so then I'm weird again, you know. (laughs) And that was very hard for me as over those decades. Yeah. To feel uh, that I couldn't explain where I was to people. And that people will be wondering, well, why isn't Daryl working? Why isn't, you know... Yeah, but I didn't feel as though I could explain it because I hadn't accepted it fully myself either. And right. I didn't fully understand the impact of the abuse. I kept thinking, uh, "There's something wrong with me that I'm so damaged by this." Oh. I hadn't seen how extreme it was. It took me a long time to see how extreme it was. We we all well, normalize our own situations. I think that's part of it. Is that's true. <laughs> I'm happy to see that
0: you're at a point where you realize that it's you are not the problem.
1: Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It's taken a long time for sure. Yeah. So as we, uh, as we wrap up here, you know,
0: I would say you've had a very different path than I would say any of my other guests on the show, but can you tell me what, what have been some
1: of the highlights for you of your life so far? Certainly the time we spend in France, it's a highlight all the time. Parenting two young men, or now middle-aged men. <laughs> <laughs> One is 44 and the other's 38. So that was very rewarding. You know, it was tough in lots of ways, fun in lots of ways. Yeah. Uh, but it's a real privilege to have been able to be part of their lives. And now to have a grandson, that's a big highlight too. Yeah. My trip to Asia, for sure, was a highlight. And my relationship with my therapist was intensely rewarding for both of us. And she told me how much our relationship impacted her and allowed her to grow because of the challenges that I would present at times. Because I was so damaged, we, we could end up in situations where we were in conflict that came from me not mm-hmm. trusting her or believing that she cared because I would project my mother onto her. And then right. she would have to look at herself and what might she be doing that was part of that. Oh, my goodness. And so we we worked together for a long, long time, and that was a real highlight for sure. Yeah. So is there any advice you would like to leave our listeners with today? I think most important thing in our lives is figuring out who we are and being able to love and care for others and feel compassion for others and ourselves. Trying to find our way out of things that might have conditioned us in our first 20 years. Lead us astray. I'm supposed to be this. People are expecting me to be that. And figuring out who we are without that and then being able to find our own sense of confidence and peace and trusting our intuition because we're less affected by that, the noise. I mean, we're all, whether it's abuse or it's just normal parenting, we're all going to end up with baggage that leads us astray. You know, mommy wanted me to be a doctor, you know, and I'm not a doctor and so I'm nothing, you know, and we, we believe that garbage. We, right, Learning, if that was the parent's message, that was the parent's problem. That was the parent's error. And that we're actually safe. Fear is at the basis of a lot of this stuff, even if we don't recognize it. So I'm going to lose mummy's love if I'm not a doctor. Right. And so trying to get beyond that fear. So it's a little unstructured, but... (laughs) No, I think that's great. You know, it's really about figuring
0: out who you are at your core. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's very sound advice. (laughs) Thank you so much, Daryl, for joining us today on the Women's Mentoring Network of Canada
1: podcast. It's been great talking to you. Thank you, Amanda. I appreciate that you're doing this and putting energy and time into it and creating something creative for everyone your listeners.
0: Thank you for joining us today on the Women's Mentoring Network of Canada podcast. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, please reach out to us at WMNCanada at gmail.com or on Instagram. Special thanks to our podcast editor, Ethan Kuenka.